welcome to episode 4 of the 150 Marchers. Last episode, we took you back to July when we looked at the Times article and delved into Bev Jackson and John Breslin. We also shared the photos we managed to acquire from the Times with Andrew Lumsden, who gave us some additional names. Warren Haig, Mary McIntosh and Mick Belston. And we heard from John Breslin. Well, the John Breslin who is still alive and he connected us with a family member of John's who said he'd be happy to talk to us. In episode four, we're going to share with you what happened when we looked into the names we were given by Andrew after looking at the photos from the Times. And finally, we talked to an actual marcher. Two marchers. Oh, yeah. So episode four. Here we go. Homosexual behavior between adults consenting males in private should no longer be a criminal offense. This march was the catalyst for all the rights we've got now. Why don't we know who they are? In the vote on gay marriage. Gay marriage. The eyes have it. The eyes have it. Children need to be taught. Charlie Craig's with us today. Children need to be taught. Our interview with Peter Tatchell. Children need to be taught that they have an inalienable right to be gay. Blackout UK. Liam Hackett. Phil Samba from Prepster. The brave step back then. And we want to make sure that people know their names. Know their names. Know their names. So this is us back in August. So have you found anything out about Warren Haig? I, I've, I haven't come up with anything. Well, as I'm always ready for you to drop the ball, <laughs> I spent hours and hours searching and searching. And what I came up with were also a couple of brick walls. But I did trawl through a bunch of things online that I shouldn't have read. Um, and I did come across this very brief description of him on the website Homo Promos. What? Wow, that's amazing. Is that a thing then? They're a website and he's on there. It said, Warren Haig was one of the most dynamic and articulate of the straight gay faction. Warren was an absolute gift as a media spokesperson, a great theoretician, but somewhat aloof from the day-to-day business of running an office, building a movement, organizing a dance or a demo, etc. He was a Canadian, worked in Compendium Books in Camden, and had one of the most comprehensive address books in London. His disappearance from London in the later 1970s was sudden and unexplained. Many people would love to know whether he is still alive and how he is. So he disappeared from London in the late 70s. He could still be alive then. That's really sad, isn't it? That in that previous description, many people would love to know where he is, whether he's still alive and how he is. I wonder when that was written then. That Yeah, I know. And I got- did. I did try and see if there was a stamp on it, but there wasn't anything that I could identify as like a date. Um, I mean, I did look on social media, um, obviously looking for people in Canada in case he'd gone back to Canada, but I couldn't see anything. And I did order the book coming out by Jeffrey Weeks. That's good. Maybe there'll be something about Warren in there. Yeah. And there could well be. I hope there is. because That would be helpful. Is there anything in Stuart's book about him? There are some bits and pieces, and some of it is more just like references to being in attendance at certain things. But there was this really interesting quote from a lady named Angie Weir, which I guess goes back to what the Homo Promos website says, because it sums them up pretty clearly. Here's the Angie Weir quote, read by Leila Noble. I was often a sort of crossover between women's lib and gay lib, and that's how I managed to get myself to a gay liberation meeting. 
I was involved in the early women's group and we in our group became aware of gay liberation and it was one of the first women's marches and as I recall it, I went along to a meeting at the LSE ostensibly to rally support for the women's march. So I stood up and sought the support of our brothers and sisters in gay liberation and then Warren Haig, who was chairing, said we have a rule after my little spiel. I think he was quite appreciative. We have a rule here. Anybody who speaks here has to say whether they're gay or straight. So I had to say. And that was my coming out moment. Can we just talk about the fact that he's described as a straight gay in the straight gay faction? Is it our definition of kind of straight acting? Oh, maybe. I thought it was like straight people helping gay people, but maybe that's what that... Yeah, maybe that's what that means. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Um, but also imagine like being in a meeting like that today. Yeah. And if someone's like, you need to declare like, wow. Mm. I just feel like that would not go down very well. But He's he's at the march, so that's a good thing. We know he's at the march. Yeah, and he's been identified. When Jeffrey's book finally arrived, we found out something quite interesting about Warren Haig. That's right, Fraser. In Jeffrey's book, Warren's last name was spelt differently. It wasn't H-A-I-G, it was H-A-G-U-E. Now we know this seems so trivial, but when you Google the latter version, a lot more information comes up. And now we're still going through it. And we've come across nothing which says that Warren Haig is no longer with us, which is encouraging. So we're still looking and researching into him with the hopes that we can find out a little bit more soon. Right. So if anyone who's listening knows anything, please do reach out. As I said before, we are 150 Marchers on Twitter and on Instagram. How about the other names, Fraser? So before we could even look into Mary and Mick, as I remember from last episode, this happened. Hey, sorry to bother you. Um, Sorry. But I've just checked the email and Stuart Feather and Philip Briscorla have confirmed and they want to talk to us. Yes! But in the days leading up to our interview with Stuart and Philip... JD, guess who's back? If you say Eminem, I'm going to slap you through Zoom. No, the GLF. They've reformed. So Fraser had been doing some more digging and had come across a Facebook group. A group that I was sure, if we could become a part of, would be like going into a GLF Aladdin's cave. So, JD, I found this Facebook group. You're going to shit the head over this. It's organised by this guy called Dan Glass. Okay. Um, He's an artist. He's got this book called United Queerdom about the gay history in the UK. From the legends of the Gay Liberation Front to the queers of tomorrow, Dan Glass. So I've ordered that as well. Oh, and he does yep. these thing called Queer Tours of London. Um, oh. they, they're called Queer Tours of London and Mints Through Time. Oh, amazing. amazing. <laughs> yeah. I guess that's like walking around and sort of pointing out or like essentially queering the city. Yeah. We really oh, need yeah. a budget and a new freaking bookcase for all these books we're oh, getting. Oh, jeez. And I need a new brain to keep all the information in. Um, no, really. <gasps> so they've reformed. I can't quite work out when um, and I can't get access to the facebook group have you googled i've googled him and i've sent him an email right okay and so we emailed dan to see if he'd be happy to talk to us we've set up an interview with him which we're hoping to do in the next few weeks but what i was over the moon about 
was that he'd made us members of the new GLF Facebook group. Ah! And he said there were members of that group who were definitely original marchers. Ah! And there was a small group of them who were all back in contact through that group. We'd struck gold, people. We'd struck gold. And so we were all over that shit. We put up a post straight away telling the group about our project and if anyone had any other names, then to get in touch. And... We got more names. But the names that came up were the ones we already had. This group of marchers might have been back in touch with each other through the reformation of the GLF, but only a handful from the original days. So it wasn't the Aladdin's cave Fraser was hoping for. It was more like a tiny little cupboard. But we weren't down in the dumps for long. Oh no. Oh no. Because like we said, all of this GLF stuff happened in the run-up to our interview with... Stuart Feather, author of the book Blowing the Lid and our first actual marcher. So, are you ready for it? Born ready, baby. Here it is. Roll it, face. So how did you discover and become involved with the Gay Liberation Front? I'd read little bits, I think in the Sunday papers and probably in the Sunday Times, about uh, gay liberation in New York and um, I couldn't um, understand really what gay liberation was about. I mean I, I knew the Palestine Liberation Front and I knew of the Liberation Front of the Western Sahara but I, I never thought such a thing could apply to gay people at all. Uh, so I was very puzzled by that and then um, friends of ours uh, and uh, my lover went uh, shopping in Oxford Street and they were handed a leaflet um, and it said Gay Liberation Front uh, come and meet at the London School of Economics and they came back and said oh we've got this leaflet and we thought we'd go and I, I thought oh Gay Liberation Front again I remembered what I'd read in the, um, in the Sunday newspapers so uh, we went along, the four of us, um, and that was my first meeting. And it was about, I, th I reckon, about the third meeting at Gay Lib. And I became um, involved immediately because a lesbian uh, uh, stood up and asked the new members to think about the way they hid their sexuality at work. And uh, that really brought forth in me, I could suddenly see all the games that I'd been playing, you know, to uh, pretend that I was straight in the office. And I was kind of appalled by that. And uh, it kind of put it into a context of how, for me, how we have modified our behaviour to conform with the law. And that was termed oppression, and so on and so forth. So I was immediately sort of converted to the cause. And uh, my two friends and my lover, they weren't interested at all. You know, within a, uh, a matter of a, a, another couple of weeks, uh, there were various function groups forming that uh, met on different days of the week. Uh, to the Wednesday meeting. So I was visiting those function groups and uh, listening to what was going on. 
There were trans people, there were only a few, but nevertheless they were there and one of them, Rachel Pollock, um, started the transsexual group. Do you know if um, Rachel was at the march? Uh, no, she wasn't. She came gaily, really, uh, when uh, GLF moved to All Saints Road, uh, Notting Hill. So I was out every night, uh, practically. My, my boyfriend was fed up with this, and so um, he left. That, that was the end of the relationship. But it, no, he wouldn't talk about why he never got involved. Um, so there we go. I, I was far too interested in Galeb and it was just too exciting to put it aside for someone who couldn't see um, the way I could see things. What were your early years like after coming out? Um, I was outed when I was 17, which was 1957. So um, I was kind of out from then on. So in 68, I had a boyfriend who moved in with me. Um, we were living uh, down World's End in a notorious block called Elm Park Mansions, which had uh, quite a lot of gay people living in flats there. Uh, the rents were cheap and uh, a lot of them were uh, uh, men who arrived from Spain to work in the restaurant trade and so forth. And so it was, uh, it felt uh, quite a safe place to live, really. And I was working, I was manager of um, a shipping and forwarding uh, staff employment agency in the city, um, of all things. Uh, so that was, that was the job I had at the time. How did the idea for the march come about? In November uh, came the meeting where... Uh, it was decided it was about time we went out and made a, a public demonstration. And there were various suggestions made. Um, there was uh, a man called Andy Ellsmore of Agitprop, who was kind of, to me, was a sort of new left, rather sort of on the hard left, um, who wanted us to go to the American embassy and demonstrate against the uh, American government's ban on uh, visa re uh, restrictions on homosexuals, where uh, anyone who claimed to be a, or admitted to being a homosexual was uh, banned from visiting America. And I thought, well, that's f something for American gays to uh, demonstrate against. And it seemed to me like an attempt to sort of link up gay lib with Grosvenor Square and uh, the anti-Vietnam demonstrations of 68 where the left were really beaten up and, uh, by the police. There was lots of bloodshed and that just typified to me how, you know, uh, uh, the left, all those very butch guys and the police were just dying to have a fight, you know. Um, they couldn't wait to get in there and start belting each other. And so I, I didn't think that was a good idea at all. And then uh, Eric Thompson, who was the lover of Anthony Gray, he was the one uh, that fronted the gay rights movement of the, of the 60s. Uh, and his lover, Eric Thompson, proposed that we go to Highbury Fields because... Um, he knew of uh, 
uh, Larry Eakes had been arrested there for cottaging by the police, pretty policeman uh, as bait. He claimed he wasn't, of course, and that he wasn't gay. And he was the chair of the Young Liberals. And so that seemed uh, more uh, in line uh, with what I'd have liked to have done. I used to regularly cottage. I was never caught, thank God, touch wood. Uh, it was of real concern to us all, was there. What was the night of the march like? I don't think it was particularly cold or it was just, um, it was fine. It wasn't raining, an average uh, November evening temperature um, in late November. And uh, we met outside uh, Highbury and Islington tube station. And eventually um, we walked uh, up to Highgate Fields doing a bit of chanting. Um, the first time I'd done any chanting. What did you chant? Give us a G, um, G, give us an A, A, give us a Y, Y. What does that spell? Gay. What is gay? Good. You know, um, uh, there were others too and I can't, I can't remember them now. That was about the first one we, 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 we used. What was the root of the march? Uh, first of all, went to, to the lavatory where Louis Eakes was uh, arrested, the gentleman's loo, and we did a lot more chanting there. I, I read recently that it was a, a sort of searchlight march. Well, um, it, it was, in fact, candles that we brought along, and uh, we marched on a bit further. Two journalists had joined us, and we held a meeting in the middle of Highbury Fields and the demands were read out, the GLF demands were read out. There was more chanting and, and then we, oh, on, on the way uh, to, the, to the place where the demands were read out, someone produced balloons from somewhere. So it became a bit of a sort of party and that was really nice. And I got... Uh, you know, I, I started chanting, where's the pretty policeman, you know, um, uh, because it, it seemed, you know, we could be funny if, if, if we chose to be. And it seemed to be OK. So we did that. And then, um, well, the police will allege that Louis Eakes, they observed him leaving the cottage and going into the bushes and lighting a cigarette. And all it was notorious for... Uh, men uh, lighting cigarettes and signalling to each other their sort of sexual interest. So after the demands had been read out, we did that. We all of us sort of broke up and went into the bushes and lit cigarettes or struck matches if you didn't smoke and uh, sort of waved your red tip of your cigarette around, sort of beckoning people to come and join you. And then after that... I think we all gathered again and we'd made the point. I heard that uh, the journalists uh, had made some um, derogatory remark about uh, poofters or something and uh, they were surrounded by the group who heard them and given a right telling off for that. And then we all 
went off to the pub by Highbury tube station, which was called the Cock Inn, uh, which uh, was just so appropriate. And it's still there and still called the Cock Inn. So <laughs> Did you know many of the other people in GLF? I'd been in GLF then about a month or so, just over. And I didn't really have much I might have spoken to one or two of the men, but I hadn't spoken at that point to any of the women. And so when we went to the Cock Inn, I made a point of talking to um, uh, a lot of the women. Um, and uh, because on, on the way back, it was amazing, really. You began to think, my God, you know, um, We'd been out and we'd been demonstrating and it all seemed, uh, it was all so exciting and and very sort of the right thing to do. I think it gave us all a, a real boost of confidence about our position and our, uh, and we demonstrated some, what, what they termed solidarity with each other uh, by then. So... I did have the confidence in the pub to start talking to people that I'd never spoken to before. And I think, in a way, that feeling, uh, that achievement, is palpable today even when you, you, know, you, you meet the people who, who were with you uh, on that march and in the pub afterwards. And it's, it's kind of very special, is that. Were you nervous during the march? No, I wasn't. In the late 60s, I was hanging around uh, drinking at a couple of gay pubs in Chelsea. And uh, that was quite a cool place, you know, to be uh, very trendy. And I would often walk down the street hand in hand with my boyfriend or someone I picked up at the time. And um, I loved it. It just, uh, you know, there was no real aggression, but people were really shocked. And I just, you know, used to enjoy shocking them really. So I wasn't at all nervous on the demonstration at all. I just uh, sort of uh, enjoyed it. Did anyone join GLF after the march? There might have been a few dog walkers around. I think if there were any gay men around at that time, they probably ran away uh, hearing us chant or um, uh, seeing us demonstrating. I don't know. I, I can't recall anybody ever saying to me that they were there at Highbury Fields and came across us and, dis and that's how they joined uh, Gay Liberation. So I, I don't think that happened. Did you ever meet Louis Eakes? No, I, I don't even know what he looks like. Um, and uh, a couple of months after that, he was arrested again in uh, uh, the, uh, band, uh, the bandstand in Kensington Gardens Hyde Park um, for having s s sex um, uh, with, with, a, with a man. So, <laughs> so he was a rather unlucky individual, really. But no, I, ne I never met him. As far as you know, he didn't go to the march? Uh, no, uh, I don't think he did. There would have been enough time, I suppose, if someone had, uh, knew him and, and told him what was going to happen, because 
uh, the meeting on the Wednesday uh, where all this was discussed and agreed, which was the coming Friday uh, on which to make the demonstration. Um, So we were striking while the iron is hot and, and so forth. What did you know of Huey Newton's influence on the Gay Liberation Front? Huey Newton, um, I've seen, I've read it described as um, uh, 50% of white American gays fell in love with Huey Newton when he asked the Gay Liberation Front and women's liberation in, in America to come to the Revolutionary People's Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia, which the Black Panthers organized and to join the revolutionary ranks of the Black Panthers. And that seemed such a remarkable, brave thing to do, considering how uh, kind of macho the Black Panthers appeared to be, and also um, the rather militant uh, Elridge Cleaver. I mean, it caused a division between those two Uh, which I guess was never properly healed. So news of that, uh, which uh, came to London with gay liberation, was a a real surprise and an an, an entire opening out of gay lib into um, black politics and, uh, well, the women's movement anyway, because women turned up at the second meeting of gay liberation much to the surprise of everybody because they wanted it to be just a a sort of male student organization but uh, fortunately all these lesbians turned up and then not only that but um, a couple of um, a couple of male sex workers which rather confounds the idea that the lumpen proletariat never get involved in revolutions Well, there was two of them, uh, the sex workers. It was a long time, actually, before other black men, Not uh, there were quite a number of black women came into Gay Lib. I think it took about another six months or so before the first black men started to appear at the meetings, which uh, uh, was really good to see and to start understanding uh, what they had to say about their position in society. Did you have a feeling about how this march would affect the future? It was a step forward, I guess. Uh, Well, it was, but um, no, I, I, I couldn't predict the future and what was going to happen at all. Also, perhaps because we, there were newspapers that were, the GLF newspaper we used to go out and sell in, um, you know, outside gay pubs, particularly in Earl's Court, which was a very gay area at the time, um, and other locales as well. And we started to have dances in town halls and things like that. So um, uh, for the first one, uh, we were mentioned in an article in in the People newspaper, which is a Sunday newspaper, quite right-wing really, but it was a a sort of fairly accurate report and said that, um, uh, I think they claimed that there was about 500 people were turned away because the dance was full and no one else could get in, they didn't have tickets. Um, So, uh, you know, 
um, I guess those people that have been turned away uh, came after Christmas and, and swelled the numbers. Are Aubrey Walters and David Fernback still around? Oh yes, Aubrey and David are still alive. Um, they don't have um, anything to do with any of ours. Um, they sort of have retired. They, they did have their uh, men, gay men's press, which published um, uh, novels and uh, serious articles on uh, sexual politics and also art books as well. Um, but uh, I think they were a sort of, um, there was three of them there, Aubrey and David and Richard Dipple. And I think uh, Richard was the one who did most of the work and, and he, he died of AIDS. So they don't, and, they, don't, they don't speak with anyone or they don't? Uh, they, won't, they won't speak with me because I wrote to them when I was uh, writing my book. I, I just, there was one thing I didn't understand. So I wrote and there was silence. And I know other people who've written and uh, they got the same um, uh, treatment of silence. I don't know about Peter Tatch, or maybe he... Um, 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 yeah, he said uh, Aubrey doesn't talk to anyone anymore. Aha. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there we are. What can you do? I mean, they're the ones with the real archive, you know. In fact, they probably have a, um, a set each of uh, everything that uh, was published and everything that was written <clears throat> within the movement. So maybe they're sa saving it up for their uh, great old age and uh, or maybe they just put it all into the London School of Economics. Who knows? I don't know what will happen there. If you walked into the kitchen and saw your teenage self, what would you tell him? <laughs> I think I'd be wary of telling my teenage self anything. <laughs> I think I'd be very happy because... Um, despite the many obstacles thrown in my way, I have achieved what I was denied in my youth. Willy-nilly, um, it's all happened. If you want a context on that, I was painting um, about the age of five. I was... Uh, performing by the age of seven and I was denied uh, the chance to go to boarding school uh, by my father because he wanted me to get a, a trade and be an apprentice engineer and come out as fully qualified as an engineer but I didn't fight him on the thing and I think possibly the reason why I didn't fight him on was because I think I was frightened of, in the fight, my, uh, my gayness coming out. I think that might have made me sort of a bit too submissive. Anyway, I got there in the end. What do you think of us looking for 150 marchers? I, I said to someone recently, well, they're, they're looking for 150 marchers. I think they'll find it extremely difficult. There was only about 75. I'll tell you where the, the um, 150 marchers number came from. It came from issue one or two, I'm not quite sure which, 
of Come Together, which was a GLF newspaper. And the GLF newspaper was Aubrey Water and his friend David Fernbacks. That was their baby. And they had sort of control of that. It's their idea. And so they, they um, kept a tight control on that for a year and a bit. So they couldn't have been 150 because uh, we were meeting in a classroom in the basement of the London School of Economics. And there just isn't a room that would have fitted even 100 students into, you know. 50, yes. And it wasn't until second week of January 1971 when we uh, started meeting in the old uh, lecture theatre at the London School of Economics. Uh, the, the 150 could be a number that we reached in about the middle of January 71. A critical mass had somewhere happened at that point and uh, People that seem to come very quickly afterwards. We'd done it. Finally spoken to someone who was at the march. When he used to hang out around Chelsea, he would leave the bars and hold a guy's hand if be his boyfriend or someone he picked up. There was no fear of violence, only people were just shocked. I was quite surprised by that. It made me think about, one, the area of Chelsea being quite a well-to-do area. Mm. Because my perception would be... Everybody was vulnerable, but then at the same time, I suppose, depending in, on kind of what circles you moved in, you were protected more so. They felt like Stuart was in quite a protected position or felt he was protected or felt he was, you know, in order to, to do that. I spoke to a guy in America and he was telling me about living in San Francisco in the 70s before sort of Harvey Milk. Mm. And he said that people didn't have a problem with gay people. They only had a problem with gay people when gay people got together and started requesting rights. That's when everybody had an issue, when they became politicised. Mm. And obviously that's not entirely true in this country because the laws were against that. But the laws are like up here, if you like. And I mean, obviously people can't see me, but they're up here. And then there's just like the everyday people going about their business. And I think that like, to an extent, obviously there are factions of the public who would go out of their way to like abuse someone. But like, in general, that statement that that man made may have a degree of truth in it. It's like as any movement becomes politicized and becomes more political, people start throwing outrage. But in general, people walking around maybe just don't have an issue. I suppose a similar thing happened here in terms of Section 28. If you look at the period we're discussing and the GLF, the start of that, the, the genesis of it, and then this rise of pushing for equal rights that that needed a collective push didn't it and that collective push then has a pushback and that pushback I suppose was maybe 10 years later you know section 28. I found it really interesting when he was listening to people talk about way that people were making concessions for their sexuality at work mm. and how he felt like he was following a lot of those um, and I think that is something that is very prevalent in today's society. Mm. This idea of straightness, mm. you know, that you come out every single day, essentially, whether you want to or not. There's a lot of echoes. The other point I thought was interesting was when he said about the, the lump and proletariat aren't normally involved in 
uprisings and revolution and that the sex workers were there now again i was surprised by that because the research and the people we've come across so far do seem to fit into a certain demographic having had the opportunity or the the chance to go to lse um, and be in that environment Mm -hmm. so i just made me think you know were the sex workers at the march was there a real wide demographic and you know andrew lumsden talked about that you know being a varied colorful sort of mix of people suppose just just thinking about class Mm -hmm. it was pleasing to hear that there was that um, I guess my thing in terms of like meeting attendance outside of LSE like knowing I mean I guess it was a different time but like what universities are like now and how you can't get in anywhere you know like so did like people just freely walk in you know was that like a thing were they not stopped by anyone I think in the 70s unions were free-for-alls weren't they <laughs> yeah I mean pro- probably <laughs> if he's saying they went and they handed out leaflets on Oxford Circus, you're going to have the you know elements of the public going to be coming, aren't they? So that's really that felt really exciting to think that there was that crossover. Mm-hmm. I just hope that we get to speak to those people. I just hope we don't go down a route that the only people we're speaking to are people who went to London School of Economics mm. when those other people were present. Yeah, because it, because it brings up questions about accessibility, doesn't it? In terms of 50 years on, what's happened to those individuals? Have they fallen away? Also, I thought <laughs> the fact that. Well, according to Stuart, Louis didn't even know about the march. And when Stuart (laughs) said, I don't even know what he looked like, I just thought that was quite interesting in terms of, you know, this being the catalyst, but the kind of person in question was sort of quite removed from it, which isn't, you know, which isn't a a, a good or bad thing. I mean, again, it goes back to like the time, though. I mean, like for for all we know, he could have known, you know, like and could have known and just not gone and been like, well, I said before, I'm not gay, so I'm not going to be a part of that. I do think it is quite funny that, like, the reason they were out on that field is for a man being arrested for something he did, and he's, he has absolutely nothing to do with it. Is it ironic? Is it, is it in the Alanis Morissette song? I mean, I don't know. <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, I just think- Alanis Morissette knows a lot about Louis Eakes, I reckon. <laughs> maybe that's where we're going wrong. We haven't gone. Maybe I know. Maybe him. we need to reach out to her and ask her if that's ironic or not. But yeah, I mean, it is quite funny that all these people are doing this one thing for a person, and they have absolutely nothing to do with it. It was interesting how there were people there, and it goes back to agendas, right? That wanted to be at Grosvenor Square and to link it in with like the Vietnam stuff, which links into like the GLF wanting to be there and be a voice for other people in in pain and how it was sort of directed back to well if we're going to do it i guess it's like our first one so we should do it for what affects us and we also talk about the numbers because stuart is now saying 75 (laughs) i mean i think the numbers is a difficult one because of the photos now because i know the photos don't show 150 people but they do show a large amount of people you know so the man who was there is saying 75 right also i need more confirmation from other sources before i'm willing to go down from 150 <laughs> I well think- i re i rewatched the newsroom um this summer fraser and yeah. they need like two to three sources before they confirm everything but exactly. everyone hated the newsroom so i don't know mm-hmm. 150 is like a goal right so like at yeah. the end of the day that's the goal and if we come short we fall short he says there's 75. He was there. He was saying that Aubrey and David, that they were responsible for coming up with that 150 names because that's what they put in the um, the magazine. Mm. There's two sides to stories, aren't there? And we've yet to hear their side of it. So I'm still hanging out for 150. 
I mean, I think it's one of these things, though, like maybe not everyone went to the cock afterwards. Maybe not everyone hung around that long. Maybe people tagged along at the end that weren't seen, you know, like maybe Aubrey and David walked around and tallied everyone and we just don't even know. Yeah. I think the numbers will always be an unanswered question. Yeah. And I think at this point I'm okay with it. Um, but I'm still holding out for 150. Ditto, babe. And we showed him the photos. I'm intrigued at who this man is. Who is this man? <laughs> I know, it's quite dishy, isn't he? He looks sort of, I don't know, um, British upper class, I'm not sure. <laughs> the next one is outside the Cock Inn. Uh, yes, this one here on the uh, right-hand side is Jim Anderson, who was um, one of the editors of Oz magazine. Um, I think the man uh, holding this torch, uh, that is Tony Halliday. And this guy? Oh, Peter D. Um, this guy here uh, is John Church. On the extreme right here is Bob Mellors in profile. Oh, wow. Yes. There's not many photographs of him at all anywhere. That one, that one looks like me. Yes, that one. Wow, it's you. It's you. Yes. Very handsome. Thank you. Stuart had given us four new names. Jim Anderson, Tony Halliday, Peter D, and John Church. And then the following day, we spoke to our second marcher, Philip Briscorla. Yes. Would Philip also be able to give us some new names? I'm, I'm a Cornishman. I was born in Cornwall in 1948. But in 1966, I came to London to study at what was then Queen Mary College, University of London, now Queen Mary University, and to study history. And after I'd studied history for three years, I had a gap year where I spent doing educational television in the Sudan and came back to the London School of Economics in October 1970 to do a postgraduate diploma in social administration. I knew I was gay, and even though I'd been brought up in a Methodist household, I never had a great deal of angst about being gay. Very fortunate in that respect. And the Methodists then were not anti-gay, and that said there was no homophobia. So, and I was still uncertain. My early sexual experiences were with women. So I was still finding my sexuality. But, and there was a book on sale in foils called The New London Spy. And it had a section on homosexual London, right next to the section on prostitutes. <laughs> it was that sort of book. <laughs> the senior side of London. And it talked about there being... Um, uh, gay bars in Earl's Court, but of course didn't name them because he couldn't name them in this book. So one Saturday I went on my own to Earl's Court and I stood by the station until I saw two very effeminate men walking down the road and I followed them and they went into what turned out to be the Colhern. And I walked up and down outside the Colhern for about 20 minutes full of fear and eventually I went in and there was a song at the time uh, called The Night is a Thousand Eyes by an American singer called Bobby V. And then I opened the door to the cowhead. It was a bit like the night is a thousand eyes. Everyone stared at you, you know. And I'm, my first reaction was, oh my God. My second reaction was, oh, they're all queer. This is wonderful. And because I was young and pretty in those days. And it was very strange because it was looked like a theater bar. 
and it had a tiny, a mini grand piano at the back with a, an elderly lady who plays sort of themes from My Fair Lady or Dr. Shivago. And people would give her gins to drink. So, but as the evening went on, so the notes got missed and it got quite Schoenberg towards the end. But, um, but it was very much two separate lives. Now, how lucky could I have been to be in the London School of Economics when um, the Gay Liberation Front was reformed? Now, I realise this is audio only, which is a shame because I have a, a copy of the poster I saw, which had been put up by Bob Mellers, who, of course, was one of the two people that founded the British GLF. He's got a picture of a load of people saying, come and join the Sisters and Brothers of the Gay Liberation Front. Um, and there were the sisters and brothers. But of course, in those days, gay was not the usual word that was used for people. You know, you were either queer, puffs, or if you were going to be academic, homosexuals. So I wasn't actually quite sure whether this was what I thought it was. So on Wednesday, October the 14th, 1970, I go up to Room 101 in the London School of Economics, and there's about uh, 18 people there. And I go in and look around, and I think, oh, Yes, they're all queer. I'm in the right place. <laughs> what did you think of the people at the first meeting? All these people were so positive and, and dynamic. They were really, and, and I felt good about it. This is, for they said, uh, the problem is not with us. The problem is with society. And of course, we adopted the phrase on our, our opening leaflet. It does say gay is good. And, and that was the important thing. I always laugh when I see RuPaul's Drag Race, and she says, if you can't love yourself, how the hell can you love anybody else? That's a gay liberation front message. Gay is good, love yourself. Then you can, you can do all these other things to, to be positive about. So that first meeting, we were about, I've got 18 or 19 of us, and we talked about sort of GLF principles and leafleting, and how do we get people to come along to the next meeting? Um, and so that weekend, we went out leafleting. Some leafleted in Oxford Circus. Some went to Earl's Court, where all the gay pubs were at that time. There were two notorious bars called the Boltons and the Colhern in Earl's Court. But we found when we went in there, and it was all very closeted. Unless you knew they were gay bars, you wouldn't have gone to them. And the general reaction was, what on earth do you think we, we're not having to do with this? Don't rock the boat. You know, we're fine. If we stick our heads above the parapet, you know, there's going to be problems. Despite the fact that, um, you know, we had passed the, the, the uh, 67 Act along with abortion rights and so on, there was still a great deal of silence about uh, LGBT issues. We didn't talk about LGBT. There was silence really in the media. The only time you read about uh, gay people was they were sinners, so the church were very, very anti-gay, or... You know, Professor Isink, and he would, would say it was a medical issue, it was faulty, and so we had um, people were given electric shock therapy. So all the stuff that you read about gay people was negative. You were sinners or you were a medical problem. Um, and so people were still really nervous about coming. I mean, I personally, when I, I went to gay pubs before GLF, but I lived two separate lives, you know. None of my friends at college or I actually went to, I went to the Methodist church, knew that I was gay. I didn't come out until GLF. So the people that I talked to were really worried. No, if you cause a fuss, the police will up their activity and they will shut us down. To a certain extent, they were right, because often the police would, would meet outside the Colhern in Earl's Court at 11 o'clock when everyone was turfed out. And just around the corner from the Colhern was a street. And late at night, 
guys would have sex um, in, in the basement of the houses there or around the corner. So the police knew this and there were easy arrests. So, so people were very, this place at weekends they could go where they could mix with other people in bars was very precious to them. The last thing they want was for that to be taken away. Where did you recruit for the GLF members? I remember leafleting in the canteen at LSE, and the following Wednesday, there were about 100 people there. And by the time we got to, I suppose, we're talking about um, Wednesday, November, because we met on Wednesdays, November the 25th, there were something like 200 people coming along, mostly young people, mostly people connected with um, various organisations like Women's Liberation, um, socialist workers, the Communist Party. So it's very much young people who were involved with a lot of the things that were happening in the late 60s, early 70s. So we had people from the anti-Vietnam movement. Um, and so it was very much that sort of... Um, and on that meeting, which is two days before the Highbury Fields, the previous Friday, there had been um, a link with the women's liberation movement who protested over the Miss World competition of 1970. Now, you might know a bit about the Miss World competition because they recently made a film about it called Misbehaviour. And there's also been a, a TV documentary called Miss World Protests. And some of the guys and women that were in the GLF early days decided to go along and support the women's lib people by dressing up as various Miss World contestants. So you had drag queens who were, it was misused, uh, misconceived and mistreated. <laughs> and someone went as Miss Ulster with blood all down their costume. I mean, fake blood, obviously. <laughs> and someone went along, one of the thin queens went along this Miss Bangladesh because um, there was a famine in Bangladesh at the time. Now, they all demonstrated outside the uh, venue they weren't allowed inside for very obvious reasons because they, but it was the women from the women's lib movement who went inside and created the farce and threw smoke bombs and, and that bit of history is well recorded this year because it also celebrating its 50th anniversary. So the GLF meeting after that, we all decided we needed to do something to demonstrate and to follow up the lead for Gay Liberation Fund. And what would we do? And people were keen to do something very quickly. Um, and so we were only, what, two months, no, less than two months old. Um, and there were a number of suggestions thrown around. Um, one suggestion was that we go to Grosvenor Square and protest outside the U.S. Embassy, where, where it was in Grosvenor Square at the time, not get a, a visa if you were out gay. It was an important issue, but not really what we were uh, involved with. One of the interesting things about the 1967 Act which, as you probably know, decriminalised homosexuals acts for men, was that after that, the police um, arrested more people after the 67 Act than they had done before. I mean, the 67 Act was mainly concerned, really, with stopping people blackmailing gay men, mostly. Um, and it was intended to do that by partially decriminalising what they did. But as a result, the police upped their um, efforts to stop people... Um, cruising for sex. And so places like Hampstead Heath, Clapham Common, often people would be arrested late at night. And the same thing happened with Highbury Fields. So it was decided on the, the Friday evening, um, which was the 27th of November, that at nine o'clock we'd go to Highbury Fields and we would, we would read out the um, gay lib demands and we would 
um, let people know that GLF had arrived and why we were there, and that we were no longer looking for sympathy and tolerance, but we were looking for respect and equal rights. So was the GLF a catalyst to you coming out? It did change my life. And I came out with a bang in 1971. I joined the Street Theatre, um, the Gay Live Street Theatre, and we did a, a, a demonstration against a book called Everything You Want to Know About Sex But We're Afraid to Ask by Dr. David Rubin, an American writer. It was a sex manual full of horrendous stuff about gay people. And we, uh, we lobbied and, and visited the publishers, W.H. Allen, in February 71. And lots of photographs were taken because W.H. Allen, their office was just by the law courts. And we did the demonstration on a Friday lunchtime and of course, there were loads of photographers outside the law courts waiting for people coming out there. They spotted a demonstration and we were dressed up in black leotards with white face. So we looked quite striking. They all rushed across the road, took all these pictures. And the next day I found my picture in The Guardian, The Daily Mirror and The Evening Standard. So that weekend, all my friends were saying to me, that you we saw the gay liberation front <laughs> so that was my coming out i didn't have to come out face to face it was with a bang i may have been a bit naive perhaps but i'm totally fine about it it felt really good and, and empowering i came out at my church i was actually living um, as a lodger with the minister and his wife and oh, they were a bit nonplussed about it but they were fine and we talked about it and of course i i I was then up to speed with the way GLF was talking about who gay people are and, and the importance of sexuality and, and all the myths that surrounded gay people. I was able to talk them through it. And, and they accepted me. I, I only had one person reject me when I came out. And he was my closest friend um, at school in Cornwall, who'd also come to live in London. And he was really upset about it. And of course, um, uh, later on, about 10 years later, I bumped into him. And guess what? He was gay too. So I had, I had confronted him with that. But he was the only person that rejected me at that time. And I was very lucky, very lucky. Can you tell us a bit about the march on the 27th of November? We, we got there, I think it was nine o'clock. We'd, we'd gathered about eight o'clock. It happened between eight o'clock and nine o'clock. I know the books say nine o'clock, but it was a, a dark, cold November <laughs> evening. And we gathered at the station because the... Um, Part of the Highbury Fields where Louis Eakes had been arrested was the south, the uh, southwest part, just close to the station, and um, also just opposite uh, there was the the gents' toilets where we knew a lot of police had uh, gone in and arrested people. So a lot of us gathered outside the gents' toilets, and we did what was then the traditional um, GLF chant, which also then we took onto Pride marches, which was "Give us a G, G, give us an A." give us a why. What's that spell? Gay. What is gay? Good. What else is gay? Angry. So we chanted this initially around the, around the public toilets and, and someone read out the, um, the GLF demands. We all had candles. That's about 50 of us lined up in two columns. So 25 of us facing the other 25. And those of us with candles lit the candles and the other 25 came up to us with their cigarettes and we then lit the cigarettes with our candles. <laughs> and then those that were brave enough kissed the person with the cigarette. So it made for a nice little theatrical moment. One of the sad things was I went with a friend called Martin Grant, 
And sadly, Martin Grant died during the AIDS pandemic in the uh, late eighties. And Martin took photographs of that event. He also taken films and photographs of some of the early GLF events and pride marches. But sadly, when he died, his parents destroyed his photographic and film collection. He did not have a good relationship with his parents. They were never happy about his sexuality. And before we could get all of his uh, stuff, they got burnt because he would have had photographs of this wonderful, you can imagine this on the, the part with all these candles in a row and people lighting cigarettes to recreate the Louis Eeks, give me a light moment. We were singing, chanting, uh, having fun, lighting candles. Um, and it was just thrilling, just being with all these wonderful people. Um, you know, uh, we didn't know what the outcome would be, what the reaction would be, but we were do. it's actually the first time we were doing something other than going to meetings, which were quite disorganized and um, you know, everyone full of ideas, bouncing with ideas, but you can only go to so many meetings. But actually being out in the open and having fun and it, a, a sense of community, in terms of spectators, there weren't many spectators. Um, we, we kind of got passing trade, if you pardon the expression. People coming home from work or going out down Upper Street, Islington for the night, they came and stared at us. I remember someone saying, what's this all about, you see? And I told them I was about a demonstration by homosexual women and men. And they said, really, there are that many of you? <laughs> and then, of course, there was the, we all went back to the pub afterwards. So you could actually cruise people where the light was better. Uh, and ironically, <laughs> the pub was called the Cock Inn. And um, so we actually got to meet people, you know, we could see them. And, and so, so that, that, was, uh, that was fun. The march on the 27th of November was the first time that the GLF had got together outside of the LSE meeting rooms. What other forms of action did you take? We were quite active in terms of certainly part of street theatre, demonstrating and bringing to people's attention how we were being discriminated against. Because a lot of my friends, when I came out saying, I really don't see what the problem is. I'm fine with it. Why are you worried? Well, because I could be sacked from my job because I'm gay. You know? And when we when GLF moved to Notting Hill Gate, because we got too big for the London School of Economics, we were having something like 300, 400 people turning up at meetings in 1971-72. We moved to Notting Hill Gate and there was a pub there called the Chepstow. And when we went to the Chepstow after the meetings, if two guys started kissing, they got thrown out. So we actually had lots of sit-ins in gay pubs around the place. Indeed, even in the London School of Economics, there was a gay uh, newspaper for, um, the, uh, published by the Students' Union for the whole of London University called Senate, based on the Senate House, um, which was uh, up in um, uh, at the main London University. And early on, they had an article about students and sex, which made very disparaging comments about queers and women. And so we demonstrated against that. We went in and we, we um, uh, told the journalist, you can't keep doing this. You've got... So there was a lot of um, street theatre going on. I mentioned the W.H. Allen book. Um, everything you want to know about sex. We didn't just go on that Friday to demonstrate against the publishers. When the book came out in paperback, we went round to booksellers that were selling it, and we put leaflets in the book and saying, this is full of misinformation, don't read this book. Some leaflets said, if you read this book and are upset, please return it to the newsagents who will give you a, or to, no, so please write to this address who will give you a full refund of your money. 
And some queens dressed up in full drag. I remember Julian Howes, one of our members, going into a, a, a book, um, one of the Hatchards, I think. And there was a pile of uh, David Rubin's books uh, at the day, and he just accidentally knocked them over. <laughs> so there was this one of this drag queen with arms akimbo and the books flying everywhere. An important thing to say about this is a lot of street theatre was fun. We were making an important political point. It also had to be joyous. Do you know what I mean? Because you don't convert people if you're always angry. They just stop listening. But if you're dressed in a flamboyant frock, you're making a point about men in frocks. Um, you're also, and, and, you, and you do something funny, that message gets across much more effectively. And we got press coverage as a result of that. As well as all the campaigning we were doing and the marches and the demonstration, we also took on um, something that started with the uh, gay organizations in San Francisco in the early 90s. And that was things called consciousness raising groups. Um, a lot of us, when we became friends, split up into groups of, I suppose, about a dozen people. And we used to meet socially and we would talk about our own experiences as growing up gay, uh, the problems and trials we've been through. And that was very important as part of the personal thing about being gay is good. And a lot of the people that were in my uh, consciousness raising group are still very close friends. They don't all, we don't all live closely now. Some have moved out to Norfolk, some have gone to Spain, but we're still in touch. And it was those personal moments that almost as important as all the, it also gave you the confidence to go out and do all the demonstrations as well. And the consciousness raising groups were very important. And a lot of what came out of that were things like a switchboard, because we knew that the things we discussed, how do you contact other people who might want to do that? And London Friend was set up as a, as London, as a part of the first, the longest serving counselling service for LGBT people, came out of these personal consciousness raising groups. And they often get overlooked as being part of GLF. But of course, there were organisations around doing great work before we started. And there was the Committee for Homosexual Equality, based in Manchester, who were mostly letter writers, but also created social groups, which were very important, are very much doing what Stonewall do now, lobbying, letter writing, and, and going through normal channels, if you will. Whereas the GLF were much like Peter Tatchell's outrage movement, you know, who... who who demonstrate and, and, and come out. They're very much in, in the GLFs. So they came out of the closet because they were very much the closet queens of gay movement. Whereas I think the GLF people, they all said, oh, you're the mad granny in the attic. <laughs> what do you think about current LGBTQ campaigning? I have nothing but positive things to say about it. I think it's wonderful that GLF this year is being celebrated because we now have a young uh, people who, who consider that GLF is the, the organization that they want to be part of. And people like Dan Glass and all those what, the young people there are reviving the need for it because we still need it. it. We've made great progress in this country, but all around the world now, we're, we're seeing um, gay people being oppressed and we need to do something about that. Also, I'm fascinated. I have learned more in the last five years about the trans movement. Um, we did have trans people in the GLF, but they were a minority. Um, and I belong to a choir called the Pink Singers, which is an LBDT choir. And we have a number of trans people in our choir who have been educating us about what it means for the trans community. 
and we have neglected some of their uh, needs for a long time. And I'm so delighted. And I, the Black Lives Movement, too, I think it's, it's wonderful to see all the young people on this movement, especially trans Black Lives Matters. Again, it's something we're addressing in my choir at the moment. We've been having some Zoom meetings called Imperfect Conversations About Race. Because race is a tricky subject, particularly if you're a white person to talk to. So we're trying to be open and honest about, about our feelings about this. So I feel what's happening at the moment is very inspiring and very important. And, and hearing people's personal testimonies is so important. We asked Philip if he could reach back and give a message to his teenage self. What would he say? Good. Yes, that's, that's an interesting question, isn't it? Um, I suppose I can say you're going to be so lucky with the things that you're able to do. And that, because I was, well, you know, I didn't know, I'd, I'd left Cornwall. I was very close to my family. So leaving Cornwall was a big break. And uh, I was very, and of course, I was living this double life. So it really wasn't a proper life. I, mean, I had very good friends at the Methodist Church and st they stayed with me, luckily. But I was also having this very unsatisfactory gay life, I have to say, because although I was able to go to gay bars, you know, I was treated as a bit of a, Twink, I think, is the expression these days. But it was it was not satisfactory, and I wasn't establishing relationships. So I would say to him, keep you know, persevere. It's going to be okay. You're going to meet wonderful people. Your life is going to be changed by this Gaelic movement. You're going to meet your your husband <laughs> or a civil partner anyway, in GLF, and you're going to be celebrating 48 years of a partnership in two weeks' time. So it's all going to work out very well. You're we also asked what Philip thought his teenage self would say back to him. Oh, he would say, I think he's, I think I was quite an optimistic. I was, when you're that age, you know, you, you don't think about all the problems. And I was having a great time. I love London. Although I'm a Cornishman, London is my second, no, it's my first home. I just love the big city. And so that was thrilling as well. And, and you know, and again, at 18, you don't want to settle down and become a boring married man anyway. So I think I would have thought, yeah, okay, now let me get on what I'm doing at the moment. Thank you. I'm busy here. Can't you see I'm busy? <laughs> um, and little did he know that, you know, in 50 years' time, he would meet two charming people and have a, a podcast with them 50 years later. <laughs> and we, of course, asked Philip about the contentious issue of numbers. I reckon it was around 80. I, I've seen figures from 80 to 120. and I've also seen 150. But I would think at 80, we were still a young organisation, you know, and we were asking people to come out and show themselves, admittedly on a dark, dank November night on Highbury Fields, but nonetheless. And Philip left us with this. Lots of people don't know about it. There aren't many of us left who went there. Um, and thank you both for doing this. This history gets lost otherwise. We also showed Philip the Times photos. Well, that was reading out the GLF demands. That's, of course, at Warren Haig. Is that Stuart? Yeah. Right. God. These are great pictures. I think this is the marching one. And that looks like, in the middle, Paul Theobald. Okay. He and Warren were great friends. So I'm almost certain that's who it is. It must be so exciting to see them. It's remarkable that the Times actually printed that tiny piece. There was nothing about... Uh, gay people or gay or anything um, around that time. You know, you had to work really hard to find any any reference to gay people. 
I'd forgotten, again, how dark it was, because, of course, we needed the torches anyway, even if they were ju not just to make a significant point. We needed them to see what was going on. But they look very good, don't they? Yeah. Mm. The sky was very clear that night as well. Oh, this is outside the cock. and that, That's the cock inn. Or oh, as I noticed, it's now called um, the famous cock inn. <laughs> so I don't know what it was famous for. I doubt it was famous for this. And there's two police officers here. Yes. I think they didn't come onto the Highbury Fields, as I recall. They were, they were around the station and around the, the Jets lavatory. Um, this man, do you recognise this man? <laughs> I got a feeling it might well be me because I, yeah, I think that that's me. Oh, wow. Oh, how lovely. Oh, my goodness. Yes, it's, it's a young me. Lovely outfit, Philip. The, oh, I know. The roll, oh, neck, the roll neck and the... Um, <laughs> You look great. We were young. Don't judge us on our fashion. No, you look oh. now. Seriously, you look great. <laughs> I seem to be very fascinated by the candle. <laughs> Deep in thought there, thinking, yes. <laughs> and over on the right there, you've got Barbara. And Barbara was in the street theatre with me. Andrew and Stuart thought this was um, Mary McIntosh, but it's not. No, it's Barbara. Okay. You've got um, a copy of Stuart Feathers Blowing the Lid, haven't you? Yes, yeah. There are pictures of Barbara there. Oh, okay, great. And next to Barbara is Tarsus Sutton. Okay. Who's like got a candle there. It's great. I really want to thank you for doing this because although I knew it was an event, the fact that you're looking into it in this way is great because I'm learning so much and remembering so much. So Mary McIntosh was off the list. <laughs> or on the to-be-confirmed list. But we had another name. Barbara Klecky. And two other names, Tarsus Sutton and Paul Theobald. To add to our four from Stuart, which took us to 19 names. And then the post we'd put in the GLF Facebook group started going crazy. Names, names, so many names. Then we hit our biggest obstacle so far. Us. When it wasn't us. No, true. We'd started this whole thing with no budget. I mean, we still have no budget. And we've never made a podcast before. I mean, I once recorded myself on an old cassette player to help me learn my timetables, but that was something else. So we've got all this... Basically, we need to come clean with you. We'd hoped to launch this podcast in September so that if people listened, they could help us add more names so that by the 27th of November, we might be able to go to Highbury Fields on the 27th of the 50th anniversary of the march and read out the names of who attended. But, well, it's now October and Fraser's only just editing episode one. It's true. I am. Aww. There's been a lockdown phase. What have you been doing, babe? Um, it's that bloody puppy. Thank you. So instead, we're going to take a break. Aww. Because we've decided to launch the podcast on the 27th of November 2020. Not only will this mark the 50th anniversary of the march, but it will give us time to catch up and do the research into our 25 names. Yes, because that's how many we have. 25 names. Not bad, is it? Not bad for two dudes that have no idea what they're doing. Only 125 to go, right? Right. And hopefully by the time we launch, 
we'll have found out more to share with you about the new marches from 1970. If you're listening to this by then... Will anyone listen? I don't know. Your mum will listen, right? Yeah, she loves listening to us rambling on. Uh, You ramble, I don't ramble. So if you are listening, maybe by the new year, you guys will have stepped in to help us add to our 25 names. So we're going to leave you here to get cracking on finding out more about these people. So by the start of 2021, we'll be back to update you on where we're at with our research and what, if anything, you listeners have been able to help us with. If you know anything about the 25 names we're going to share with you, or if you know anyone that does, we'd love to hear from you. And if we do, we'll add those names or lead to the research we're about to embark on. Also, you know we cock-teased you with all those amazing campaigners we interviewed. That was my attempt at making this sexy to get more attention from the gay media. Yeah, good point. Keep it in. We did interview those people. We promise you we did. So in the new year, we'll be starting each episode with an interview with one of the amazing campaigners we've spoken to whilst updating you on our search. So that's us for now. We like to think of it as a little cliffhanger. It's a cliffhanger for you at home, but a lot more research for us between now and Christmas. That's how everyone says it in Scotland. Well, that's if we have a Christmas. I mean, we might be in lockdown by then. Don't, babe. So it isn't over, is it, Fraser? Nope, we've only just begun. We'll see you in 2021. Boom. That's a rhyme. Not from me, but I wrote it and Fraser said it. So our names so far. Remember them. They change things. And if you recognise them, help us honour them. Bob Mellers. Aubrey Walter. David Fernback. Stuart Feather. Philip Ruscola. Jeffrey Wanzel. Bev Jackson. John Breslin. Jeffrey Weeks. John Pridmore. Warren Haig. Mary McIntosh. Mick Belston. Tarsus Sutton. Elizabeth Wilson. Paul Theobald. John Lloyd. Jim Anderson. Tony Halliday. Peter D. John Church. Barbara Klecky. Angus Sutty. Mix Canamar. Richard Dipple. The 150 Marchers was written by Fraser Flintham and J.D. Stewart and edited by Fraser Flintham. Additional vocals by Layla Noble. If you know anyone who attended the march, anything that we've talked about that raises any kind of exciting flags for you, please get in touch with us. You can find us on Twitter at 150marchers. Our DMs are open, so please slide on in.